Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Ruler Podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson. Uh, for context, not sure when you're listening to this, uh, but we're in the final week of the Vuelta with uh, Chris Froome, still looking a likely candidate to win two Grand Tours in a year. I'm with Ruler's executive editor, Ian Cleverly, and I'm delighted to say uh, we're joined by the actor, comedian, and longtime cycling fanatic, Michael Smiley. Welcome, Michael. Thanks very much. Uh, you'll know Michael from uh, lots of things, the TV series Spaced, from Luther, Ripper, Street, Doctor Who, Black Books, uh, loads more, uh, plenty of films as well, and uh, from this year's brilliant British boxing film, Jawbone. And if you're in Northern Ireland, you may have caught some of his cycling TV series, Something to Write Home About. First, though, one of the few people who, at the start of the year, we expected to challenge Chris Froome in the Grand Tours was, of course, Richie Porte. Well, that dream ended for him on stage nine of the Tour de France with a horrific crash on a descent which left him with a fractured pelvis and collarbone and pretty much scuppered the chances of Dan Martin as well. Ruler editor Andy McGrath caught up with Richie to find out how his recovery was going. Basically, I was, um, wasn't really able to move for the best part of five weeks, but um, I'm back on the bike now. And I'd have a little bit of pain in the collarbone, scapula area, but it's all... It's all healed up really well um, I'm happy with where I'm at but I think you know I need another sort of five weeks before I can really do any intense training because I think the doctor said that uh, the bones basically take 12 weeks to heal themselves completely so I, I'm happy with where I'm at it's disappointing now looking back on it but um, you know I think all things um, considered I, I came out of the crash it, was, it could have been potentially a really bad crash but I, I kind of got away with it quite uh, lucky what exactly happened to cause that crash yeah I mean you get the the usual um, know-it-alls on Twitter that or, or social media that you know say that so I was on a, a bad line and a, um, bad a, a descending and this and that but the fact of the matter was is that um, you know you saw the last half of the crash we came around the the, the bend to the right and uh, you know basically I, I touched the brakes and I, I can honestly say I wasn't panicked or anything but I had a bit of a problem with my rear wheel um, and, and it locked up on me and then uh, yeah I think when, when you see the footage of me trying to take that left hand um, ben does on a, quite a bad line and I sort of had to make a split second decision to try and hit the, the grass on the apex of the of the corner but uh, I hit the grass and hit the wall eventually too it's just uh, a bit sad really that I took Dan Martin down with me and, and he had his injuries that he did because I'm sure he would have been uh, pretty close to the to the podium had that have not happened and tell me what was going through your head in the moments after you crashed, uh, what were you checking or thinking? <laughs> to, to be fair, um, the thing that it really is uh, on my mind was uh, actually Oakley gave me a nice new pair of um, custom glasses, so I kind of want those, but um, they kept on handing me um, Dan Martin's glasses, which aren't the, the nicest of glasses, but uh, I've seen since seen in, in footage, mine were on the left-hand side of the... <laughs> the uh, corner smashed into a million pieces I think basically every car and every rider that came down must have gone over the top of them you get given all this stuff but I really like those glasses but um, you know basically then if it you know seriously I, I was going fast when it when it happened and um, I, I kind of realized that you know 
I was okay. I didn't get knocked out or whatever. And, um, you know, then I, I realized how serious it must have looked because, you know, they put the neck brace on me and, and they uh, kept on asking me, you know, how, how I was. And, and one of the guys in the ambulance said to me, he said, you're very lucky. After the adrenaline wears off, you kind of feel the pain. And uh, I was in a fair bit of pain. It felt like I was on fire as well. I lost quite a lot of skin. Mm. But, uh, you know, I think I was uh, pretty lucky a pretty lucky guy so what did you make of the rest of the tour watching from your sofa in monaco yeah i think for me maybe it wasn't as good as in in past years but i, I guess he also didn't have the opportunity to really open up on a, a mountaintop finish but he was obviously impressive in the last time trial but i think team sky were super impressive from sitting there on the couch um you know where all the experts get to sit and watch the race it was um, team sky were um, you know, like Lander and and those guys were, were super strong. And how does that fit into the context of your season? Because you've had some great uh, one-week stage race results and, and then that happened at your big goal of the season. Yeah, I mean, it's terribly disappointing. But, um, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's a bike race and, and I could have been, you know, more seriously injured. So I think retrospectively, yes, it was my biggest goal. But, you know, at the end of the day... In five years' time, you know, when I can, you know, walk and, and um, you know, my wife and I will eventually have kids, I guess. And I guess that's it. At the end of the day, your health is more important than, than anything. But, uh, you know, going into the tour, I, I was on the form of my life. So that side of things, it's disappointing. But I think next year, um, BMC are, uh, are going to back me again. And, and um, from the, the elite um, tour route, um, hopefully, if it's anything the same, I think. Um, it should be a good or a better tour for me. So what things, what luxuries did you enjoy doing in the middle of like July, late July that you wouldn't have, have otherwise been been doing? Basically, every second person that came to visit me uh, came with Toblerone. I was getting boxes of Toblerone, so that's uh, it was good for the, the morale, but uh, that stuff sticks to your ribs, so I've got quite a, quite a way to go now. Um, but uh, I think, you know, one of the, one of the luxuries is probably being able to watch the, the race from a different perspective. I mean, it's the, the tour is such a pressure cooker um, when you're there, but to be able to, to watch it on the on the television, like it is a different perspective. It all looks a, a lot easier. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was massively disappointing. I mean, I really wanted to be there on the, on the podium, but, um, you know, a year of watching the tour you know it does give it a, a different perspective and I think you can learn from you know taking the bad out of it but you know it basically is just another race when you watch it on TV and are we going to see you back racing this season at the moment I think you know probably late October um, Japan Cup um, I love that race I love racing in Japan and, and the, the fans there are you know, almost as good as like the English or the Aussie fans, like they really get behind it and uh, support you. So, I'm uh, I'm hopeful that I can get back and and uh, have a good race there. Richie Port, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Richie Port, talking to Andy McGrath. So, uh, Michael Smiley, welcome to the Ruler Podcast. I uh, described you in the introduction as a cycling fanatic. Do you think that's a is that a fair description? Yes, very much. I'd say I'm a um the three sports that I, I love are um, cycling, football and uh, boxing. And I've even um, infected my family with it. So my 11-year-old son is obsessed. My wife's obsessed. With cycling or with, with boxing? Cy- with cycling, with cycling, with um, especially the Tour de France. So we just gather around and shout at the, tele- uh, the television for the most of June, which is great. And we have a house in France, so we always try and get the chance to see uh, when the, the route comes out, whether it's going to be near us or not. Was it near you this year? No, it wasn't, We but the Vuelta was. The Vuelta went through Prad, which is the sort of nearest big town to where we, we are. So we went down and seen the rollout and stuff like that and seen the the uh, coaches come in and that and got to meet some of the riders, which was great. It was fantastic, you know. It was really hot, so there was a lot of waiting around because my boy wanted to get his autographs. And, and the selfies and stuff like that. So there was a lot of hot waiting around. My six-year-old daughter wasn't too impressed. But 
I've never been a spectator at the Vuelta. Is it a good race to, to go and watch? It always seems to have those really long stages where there's not actually that many spectators around. Well, it's very hot, do you know, and it's very dry and you feel like you're out there, you feel you're baking, you're baking in the desert there, you know, and it's it's nice, it's all right, but it's it's not on the Tour de France scale, you know. When you go to see the Tour and then you go to another Grand Tour and they're just nowhere near the same. You know, the caravans aren't the same and, the, you know, the stuff that the kids want to blag isn't the same, there's not as much. But and uh, but the other flip side of it is you can slightly get closer to the stars as well, you know. So we were, I got pretty close to Chris Froome and a few of the others, you know, so which was just fantastic for the boy. So the only proviso we're getting close to the stars is except for Alberto Contador because he gets mobbed. Yes. Everywhere. Everywhere he goes, he goes in Spain he gets he just mobbed. just can't move. People, I'd seen a man with tears in his eyes shouting at him to, yeah, yeah. that day which was quite sweet. And he's taller than you expect. Yeah. I, I didn't think Contador was tall, but he's tall. Uh, you were born and grew up in, in Northern Ireland. Did, were you a cyclist when you were a kid? Yeah, well, not a cyclist, as in, you know, in the modern sense. I had a bike, you know, in that classic sense of the, you know, the bike, the bicycle in itself historically being the first independence that you get. You get a bike and then you can leave your town. You know, I think that... They, I remember somebody saying one time that the bicycle actually thinned out the village idiots because they could actually leave and go and be an idiot in some other village. And, you know, I remember as kids, we were just heading out of our little housing estate and going out in um, Sharabangs over the top to Newton Arge or down to Bangor and stuff. Like I came from a town called Hollywood. And all my mates were getting, um, were getting drop-handled racers or they were getting choppers or whatever, and I wanted one. And my first bike was a girl's bike with white tyres and it, it's so ingrained in me. It was a Dawes Dainty, and it was green, white, and gold, red, white, and blue, yellow, and black, and it was a girl's bike, and I was gutted. Character building, then? Well, I just thought Santa Claus has taken a piss, because I definitely asked for a drop-handle <laughs> racer. <laughs> Little to raise, I was, my, I was all my man I could afford. So, so what happened after that? Did you, did you carry... Have you always been a cyclist? Or, like a lot of people, did you sort of give up at some point and then reintroduce yourself to it? Well, I always rode the bike, you know. I always, always rode the bike around the place, but I didn't do it in competition. I didn't, you know, I didn't buy cycling jersey. I didn't have a concept, really, of the Tour de France. It was just something, you know. Um, but it was only when I came to London and, you know, with a, a, a son and no work in the 80s and I seen a guy go past with a, a radio on his shoulder and a bag on his back and I thought oh I can ride a bike and uh, I got myself a bicycle and became a courier and so the it was a tool of my trade then so I started learning about how to get across London learning London you know all the different routes stuff like that it was nearly like I was going from a knowledge and then slowly but surely finding a good courier company and settling with them and then um, discovering the Tour de France through career culture. So there was a lot of um, of the shiny-legged boys who used to hang around Soho and do jobs for the um, for the media, the ones who just didn't leave the West One area. And they used to sort of um, ponce around Dean Street and um, St Anne's Court and places like that. You know, so I used to hang about with them a bit. There'd be like Angus and there'd be Buffalo Bill and people like that I used to hang about with. And... They were watching the Tour de France at some of the, the Spanish or the Italian coffee shops. And I remember in 87, watching the classic Stephen Roach, Delgado um, duel. I remember vaguely the year before, I think it was, no, the year or two before when it was the Le Monde, Hino um, debacle as well. But the, 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 um, the Roach one was just, that was my, my awakening. It wasn't actually easy to catch the tour on telly those days either, was it? It was like, you know, you could bar Italian Fifth Street. There was yeah. a, a, another Italian place in Charlotte Street. Yeah. And apart from that... It, and there was a little one, I'm trying to think of the name of the street now, there were the, um, that Gelato is now, Gelupo is, there's a lovely um, uh, ice cream shop off the back of, oh, it's off Great Windmill Street. Uh, and there was one down there as well, and he had it down, he had it on a projector. So it was all slightly out of focus and it was at the wrong angle, but you would then watch it and it was all in Italian. You could also go to Paolo Garbini's shop in Great Portney Street. He was um, mental though, wasn't he? He, he was, was mad as a brush. <laughs> it, it was them. great. It would, you would do and you'd just, you'd just get Spend nailed. Spend no money. Spend, Spend no, no money. money. Uh, uh, Paolo would... Have him shout at you for a yeah. while and then you would leave. Paolo would smoke his pipe and abuse you. Yeah. The pre-digital cycling world is just hilarious, isn't it? 
it just I just that was part of my love affair with the bicycle comes from the eccentricity that sort of oscillates around this highly polished machine now people talk about mammals and people talk about Rafa and people talk about you know um, it's, it's become super slick but also that you know what was in the outside of it was guys in plus fours and old cycle um, the CTC fraternity and those boys in internal hub gears and Sturmy Archer and all that stuff, you know, Bloomwell's hand, um, you know, mud guards and stuff like that was, for me, was part of the um, the excitement for me because as an immigrant to England and to London especially, it was a little um, view under the skirt of English eccentricity. It presented itself in the form of the of, of cycling, and I found that really endearing. It, it helped me to endear myself to, you know, what what was part of English culture, and it was also it wasn't well known by people, even though it was visual, it was visible, and it was all around you. It still wasn't, you know, people didn't know anything about it really because they, they just sort of passed it off as some sort of, you know, it's just an eccentric sport. I always thought that was the the appeal of it that yeah. it was that it was so underground that you were you were odd. And, yeah. you know, that nobody else knew about it. And that, to, to me, that was always the appeal. Well, I was living in West London at the time uh, in uh, Portobello Road area. And my um, my cycle shop was the bicycle workshop in the All Saints Road with yeah. Ninon uh, at upstairs and Tom Board downstairs. Tom Board, Tom Board uh, building frames downstairs. And I saved and saved and saved. And I used to go there on a Saturday because it was a little proper workshop, like a little box room at the front. Um, I used to do help them by doing the repairs out on the on the uh, the pavement, like you know puncture repairs and stuff like that. Just any any stuff that it was was going to help unclog the business on a Saturday. And in return, they used to keep bits to the one side. If somebody was upgrading their bike, they would keep the old bits for me. And eventually, um, I built up a bike which I kept in Ireland. But before that, I'd got Tom uh, to build me my first ever bicycle which I've still got, and it was stole three times, and I got it back three times. And, you know, I loved the bicycle workshop, and I loved the people that would come in. And because Ninon was a woman, and because cycling is such a male sport, and even more so then, for her to own a shop, she was she was the oracle to a certain man. So there was old men that would come over from places like, you know, Essex somewhere, you know, from cycling from Epping. I remember one guy one day, he went, they said to Ninon, uh, Ninon, I have a um, a lovely enamel pot that I take when I'm going touring, and I've realised that the inside of it, uh, some of the enamel's chipped off. Um, now, I was thinking, um, could I hammer out the inside of it, or should I have to buy a new pot? And Ninon just looked at me, buy a new pot. And, oh, right, thank you. And bought some brake, bought some brake blocks and disappeared. <laughs> but the the point of the matter is that it's now, and I don't want to go into a tailspin of sadness about it. But the bicycle workshop had to close its doors a week or two ago yeah, yeah, after yeah. 37, 38 years yeah, yeah. because of what's happening to London. Is that any interesting area? The hungry snake has now discovered its tail, and it's you know it, what's happening now is that she had her rent hiked up to both. To buy thirty thousand pounds a year, an extra thirty thousand pounds, she's going to find top of it for somebody who was going to be struggling anyway, because most people either go to Evans or bad online or go to Wiggle and places like that. You know what I mean? And Chain Reaction, the Irish, the Irish company as well. So I felt really sad because that was a, another connection to why I get into cycling was through the personalities that came through her door. The courier uh, culture has disappeared as well, hasn't it? Well, the couriers have disappeared. You hardly ever see um, bike couriers in London now, do you? Well, they're about, but uh, I think they're they're probably not on getting paid job per job. They're probably on a daily rate and they're probably uh, connected to um, a company. You know, I think there's certain things that you, you can't send over the internet and there's certain things that need to be moved around, but it's not like it was. It's not like it was the Pony Express days of when I was doing it, you know. Um, and it was, you know, they were really brilliantly, dangerously, you know, and also very exciting because it was part of a culture. Again, you know, you talk about the cycling culture, Ian, but then there was a cycle courier culture, which is sub, it was a sub-genre within a sub-genre nearly, you know. And then on top of that, there was a lot of young people who were squatting or were living in co-ops and they were having parties at the weekends and... There was a lot of pubs that were closing like they are now, you know. And they would be having, you know, they'd be selling off the beer on a Friday night 
for 50p a pint, a pound, a pound, a pound. And the couriers would get to know about it. I'd just swarm like locusts onto the pub and help them, help them close the pub early. And those were like, and the, par- the, the, the parties and the races and stuff like that. It was just fantastic. And we were talking uh, on the podcast uh, uh, a month or so ago about the sort of you know the red hook criteriums and the and the fixed gear races which we're seeing now, and a lot of that, a lot of the appearance of it has sort of grown out of that career culture, hasn't it, from the alley cats and that. But it's a uh, it, the, the actual culture it's based on almost seems to be a dying thing. Yeah, Delivery is not the same, is it? Well, I'd say it's very closely related, but to to the alley cats, which are slightly scary concept to my mind but it's like it's like kind of legalizing the alley cat concept you know like putting in a kind of official party basing but it was like when I started careering in 83 practically everybody was a musician an actor filmmaker filmmaker photographer you could you could earn enough I used to work three days a week you could earn drug smuggler (laughs) yes now and then you could enough in three days work to 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 fund your, you know, to fund what you did, your project on the side. And that was the beauty of it. There was a courier magazine called Moving Target. I think yeah, it's online now. And, um, Buffalo Bill. Yeah, Buffalo Bill. And I remember, I think one of the first of those um, gathering of the cycling, cyclists together was there was a, um, there was a man who was a filmmaker, he was a documentary filmmaker and he was killed on his bicycle. Um, I said, I think it was something like John Lewis on Oxford Street by a, a Rupert Murdoch sky pack lorry that was lost on Oxford Street. The guy got himself lost and shouldn't have been on Oxford Street and then done a panic left-hand turn and killed this guy. And on the mon- we'd heard about it last thing on a Friday night and on the Monday morning, all the um, couriers met at Speaker's Corner and I always remember there was a wreath that had been bought for him and one of the lads had one of those... Um, brewery bicycles you know had the big box in the middle and it's a big long wheelbase and they uh, put the wreath on a, on a pole and everybody met and there was a speech about what had happened and we got we went away leaflets and we went to every um, junction along oxford street at rush hour in the morning half eight in the morning and laid the bikes down and handed out leaflets and just stood and just held up the traffic as a mark of this the death of this man and then we got we um and then we hung the wreath where he was and then where he was, he was killed. And then we got us all the way down to um, Soho Square and his daughters were there. I used to live in a mansion house, one of those mansion flats on Charing Cross Road. And uh, we met his daughters and we collected money and given to them towards his funeral. You know, um, and that was the start of those sort of, um, yeah, critical mass, cycle, political consciousness stuff, you know what I mean? Um, and I remember being really moved by that because you were always, it was a dan- it's a dangerous, thing cycling we all know and it's becoming more and more cycling now there's more and more it's people are getting either incredibly pro it or incredibly anti it at the moment it feels much more polarized um uh, much less I, I guess one of the one of the disadvantages of it becoming so mainstream is that actually it's attracting a lot more attention. You know, cycling is not under the radar anymore. Cycling is in the full glare of publicity. I mean, someone who's been riding for nearly 40 years in London, um, it has never felt as dangerous out there. And also these, you know, I, because I'm an ex-courier, I, I tend to take the back roads. If you go into those blue super highway things, you're getting the cycling equivalent of a BMW driver right up your back pipe and cutting you off on the traffic lights and doing track stands and standing around and you know, doing track stands in his Rafa gear and just going, why do you hate your wife and your job so much, mate? Because, you know what I mean? You're working in IT, you've merged your mortgage, you can't afford to live in Clapham, so you're living in Balham, you hate yourself, you hate your wife, you hate your job, you do, this isn't what you saved up for. So every morning you get on your bike and you put it onto the big ring and you go to, you become the daddy of the, of the superhighway. And it's, it's really dangerous because we're, the whole idea of cycle, inner city cycling is to protect people and to help them and to segregate them so that they don't end up under the wheel of a lorry, you know what I mean? And I've seen people under the wheel of a lorry and it's the most frightening, ugly thing you've ever seen in your life and it scared me for days. I bumped into a Belgian pro cyclist in the city of London a few years back who was, I just spotted him, he was, you know, having a weekend in London with his girlfriend. And uh, after a little chit-chat, he said, why, why are all the commuters racing? He just couldn't get his head around it, you know? 
and this is a racer, but he just like, well, we, 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 don't, we don't commute like, like we're racing, you know, we, everybody goes slow in Belgium. And also the Belgians don't drink, <laughs> like the drink oh, no, over no. here. <laughs> you know, the culture's different. I don't know why the culture's different, but there's a culture's different here. You know, the, the, in, in the pubs, it's like a, a whistle's went and they've told them it's last orders and it's seven o'clock in the evening. People are drinking like it's the last days of Gamara, you know, and the cycle, like, they're, like they've stolen the bike, you know. You can just chill out, man. Yeah. Just chill out. So I don't get, in, I don't get into competition with. It. I just go around the little back routes and poodle around and use my Brompton as much as possible. You know what I mean. So you know you're not getting into competition with people. Do you still do that thing from uh, from courier days? Was like if, when anybody mentions the name of a company to me, I always say, "Twenty three, you got Windmill Street," and they go. How do you know that? Yeah. I'm like just testing myself if I've still got it. You know, I got, I got mates calling me going, uh, Wimpole Street, and I'll go, it's such and such and such and such. I got friends calling me like I'm their, you know, I'm their app yeah. For, yeah. for London Cycling. How much of that experience did you bring into the role, which a lot of people will kind of have first seen you on in, in, in television, which was um, Tyres O'Flaherty, the uh, cycle career in Spaced with Simon Pegg and Jessica Hines? Well, Tars came from um, obviously from my real life, and you know Tars. I was a, you know, through being a, a courier, I also got into the early days of the acid house culture and squat parties and all that side of things, and had done a bit of DJing and had my decks and had my mixer and stuff, and um, and I my marriage, my first marriage had broken down, and I was a stand up, and I went to um, I'd got invited to the Adelaide comedy festival and we all went over there was about 15 of us went over and um simon Pegg was one of the comedians one of the stand-ups he was um going over as well him and i were sort of billeted together on the flight i was the his agent um given my mobile number because i was one of the first comedians to have mobile and so he got in contact with me and i said look we're up in this pub on at Heathrow and he came and met us all. There were like Sean Locke there and Frank Skinner and Omar Jalili and, you know, just loads of us, loads of us there. And anyway, we were sitting beside each other on the flight and became friends from that moment. And he had split up his girlfriend. We ended up sharing a flat when we came back from Australia. Got a flat together and then his mate Nick moved in. And then Simon was doing stuff with Jeffrey Perkins. Do you remember? God rest his soul, Jeffrey Perkins. One of the last great producers one of the men who would actually take a punt instead of it having to go to some commission, he would go. And so he loved um, Simon and he loved Jessica Stevenson, who's now Jessica Hines. And he loved their dynamic. And he, inter- he introduced him to Edgar Wright. And it was all through a, a little a sitcom come masquerading, or a sketch show masquerading as a sitcom called The Asylum. And I think legend has it, he said to them, you should go and write something. If you write it, I'll commission it. And lunched out, became spaced. And then because of that, I think, and I said, come, you need characters. And because we were living together and I was still having my decks up the, sta- up the stairs and I was still going out clubbing and I was still a keen cyclist, still on my bicycle. That, and I'd, he'd sat up night after night with me telling, regaling him with stories of being a courier. So he just went, we've written this character and he's called, you know, Tyrus O'Flaherty. And I went, that's a terrible name. <laughs> And he, he went, uh, so, and I was waiting for him to say something along the lines of, so you hope you don't mind, but we've written it and we're going to give it to you, blah, 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 you know. And he went, I went yeah. And he says, so would you, would you play him? And I went, I'd love to. And that was my big, that was the big break, you know. That was the big thing. Little did we know, you know. Didn't it only run for two series? Yeah. And yet it, it seems to have had a life span, you know. It, it, it seems to... It's a bit like Forty Towers. It's one of those things like it, it, it just lives on and on. And almost and everyone in it has gone it. on to do yeah. bigger things. And there's so many famous names sort yeah. of appear in in that those two series before but it was they were also, famous. It was written with a lot of love. You know, there was a uh, and they were high on the hog with it. You know what I mean? Imagine being given carte blanche to to just go for it. You know what I mean? It's like a lead out. You've just pulled away. Next minute, you've got the line in front of you, and then Simon and Jessica sprinted for the line. You know and, and Within it, it was there's a lot of love in it, but also it came out at a time when there was a lot of other really top quality sitcoms coming through, like a gentleman was coming through, Royal Family was coming through, Peter Kay was coming through, the um, Little Britain was coming through. It was a, so it sort of got lost a wee bit amongst all that, the louder, more ambitious ones, you know. But what it had was a really hardcore um, fan base, 
massive fan base who are very quiet and very into it and very loving, you know, and over the years that's grown and grown and grown. I think that's the thing about being in a... Um, if you're lucky enough to get into a series that's loved, it'll be eternal. You know, it's what, 1998? So, and I, was, I went out in 99, 2000, something like that, first and two series. And it's still the one I get recognised for. And even though I look nothing like tires anymore, um, I still get recognised. I open my mouth and you can just see these people's heads just moving like zombies towards you and then not making eye contact and skipping off and then coming back and then shuffling up <laughs> and then eventually garbling. I'm a big fan. I love space and thought tires are Can I get an autograph? And, and that to me is just so humbling and beautiful. And it's a real... It's a real privilege to have been part of that and to, to bring the world of the cycle career to the screen, you know. Let's talk about uh, Jawbone, a uh, film about uh, what you said was one of your other great loves, boxing. Um, there are some strange similarities between boxing and cycling, aren't there? You know, the, the, in terms of the type of people the, the tracks and also the I guess the pressures of the sport in some ways well it's very singular as well isn't it um, and even like there's boxing clubs and there's boxing teams and it's still really you and the same as cycling it's still really you at the end of the day whatever it is whatever your discipline within the cycling fraternity is you know whether you be a climber or a time trialist or whatever it's still you and I think I find that really attractive my father was um, the sports that my father was into were non-competitive sports, really, you know. So it wasn't, wasn't really team stuff, it was singular stuff. He loved fishing and shooting and photography and stuff like that. But he also was a massive boxing. He hated football, but he loved boxing. So it was something that um, bonded the two of us together, you know. Um, so for me, uh, it was there's something nostalgic about the, the world of the, again, similar to the cycling. I look back at it with rose-tinted glasses, you know, that... The great days for me, the great days were the, or the old days of um, Rumble in the Jungle and stuff like that. I remember being allowed to stay up. But also the Marvin Hagler, um, Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hitman Hearns, Roberto Duran, those boys, that, the middleweight, uh, they were just, I was a massive Hagler fan. But also I loved um, Thomas Hitman Hearns. It was just something, it was just, he was like a killer pimp, you know what I mean? I loved him. It was just something about him, that long reach. He was like a snake, he was like a cobra. All those things. And again, there's the connection with cycling too, that, you know, I've got friends who go, I just don't understand it. It looks rubbish to me. And you're going, well, it's sort of like chess. and It's sort of like chess in a way, but you've also got to know why they're doing it for what reason. But also, if I tell you a story, so you start telling them the, the legends of the different characters and who they were and where they were from and what they did and like slaying the badger, the Le Monde, you know, stuff. And you start telling them that story. Then their eyes light up because it's not the actual Tour de France. It's now all these collection of stories that are coming together and history that's coming together, and boxing's that too. It's about personalities. And, you know, the world of cycling, the ones that you fall in love with, the ones with the personalities, you know. If it's not personality, it's what they've done. So injury and being somebody who didn't have much of a personality, but it's what he did. Yeah, because I was going to say that you were saying earlier on, uh, before we started, that yeah, Indiran was was one of your heroes. And yeah. there's a man, yeah, phenomenal athlete, uh, huge achievements, but actually not much of a personality at all. But, you know, but again, you know, to watch him, like I have, I've still got all the VHSs of um, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93 of um, the Tour de France that was on Channel 4 with Phil Liggett, you know. And I loved Indurand because I loved that poker face. That was the real poker face. Some, you know, you look at some of them and their faces are on safari and they're all over the bike and they're, tr they're trying to get up that hill. And Indurand just... Monitor, you know, it was like a metronome going up the hills, and it was just something in comparison to all the, you know, the gurning snake like madness that was going on around him and the heat. And there he was, just, just you know, popping it up, just up there. He was just tapping it out, tapping it out, tapping it out, you know. So that you know, as an actor, for example, if everybody's being really big, be small. If everybody's being loud, be quiet, because somebody's going to go, why is he being quiet? And then you're going to draw your attention that way. Same with Injuran. You know, and I loved that in him. I just thought it was some. There was a real humility to him. There was a humbleness, and it's. I've always been a big fan of the the paysan cyclist. You know, I've, you know the Pouliadors, you know the Sean Kellys, the boys from the countryside who just go up and just give it their all. You know what I mean? And just hands like hands like hams and legs like legs like mountains in a way they went. Lovely. I love that stuff. 
You know, it's very romantic. What comes across very much from uh, in Jawbone is 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 the um, accuracy of the atmosphere in in the boxing club in particular. There's obviously a lot of effort went into that. That was important. I presume it was important to you, but important to Johnny Harris who wrote it and started. Well, Johnny um, is an ex-boxer. Johnny was an ABA champion at 16. So, um, and he, you know, he came out of the Fitzroy Lodge uh, down in Lambeth there, and. You know, there was a um, the trainer there was a guy called Mick Carney. So there was these, you know, there was people that had a profound effect on him in his life that he wanted to um, write this story based on that, you know, and based on a man who was looking for redemption. And, you know, the the boxing world gives you that, you know, the world of boxing can give you redemption or it can give you damnation, you know. And, you know, those biblical terms that I'm using are, are really applicable to some something as ancient as the art of self-defense and so when johnny was doing it like for example the the actual fight scenes it was really important for him for them to be as um visceral and as real as possible because a lot of this the boxing fraternity are going to watch a boxing film you know it's their baby they're going to watch a boxing film it's a bit like us watching a cycling film you want to see the authenticity of the action scenes so as i I've rarely seen um, a, f- a, f- a film about boxing where the actual fight scenes themselves convinced me. Even I'm, Regent Bull didn't really convince me. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about because I, I'm I'm not a boxing fan, but I know you two are. Is I couldn't I couldn't work out, and I thought the the boxing scenes were absolutely off the scale. I couldn't work out if that was fantastic directing or if there was some new technology, film technology, you know, film cutting that they. The, the was just it wasn't either or it was also and right, you know it right, was all right, of right. those things yeah, right. and also the you know that um they cast um luke essex smith who was the other the guy that johnny was fighting who was a, um, a mixed martial arts fighter box cage fighter amazing amazing athlete looks amazing fights really well good actor great lad brave you know so when they were choreographing it they were fighting so now, a lot of times they were pulling punches, but they were landing punches. And, you know, so they'd choreographed it for weeks and weeks and weeks to get it looking authentic. So they knew what they were doing. But also, you know, because they're ex-boxers, they can take a punch and they could throw a punch, you know. So there was a lot of that. But on top of that as well, Thomas Knapper, the director, was amazing. And the DOP, and between them, they, um, they'd set it up. So when they were doing their, um, when they were doing the sparring, and doing the, the the fight scenes as well. He was in the ring, so they'd have the camera on a, on your chest. So we'd have like a, um, you know, you have the pads when you're training. Mm. You have the pads where you were a body one as well. So put a camera on that, so you could see the, the punches coming to the chest or coming at you. But also he had a, um, I think it was, um, I think it was a Lomo camera that he would go in while they're sparring him. He would be in around them, moving the camera in around the fist and around the hand and into the body and up. So it wasn't like, the camera was anticipating the punch, the camera was there before the punch or after the punch or on the punch and stuff like that. So all that mixed together, you know, was um, created what it is, you know. And I thought, I think the, the fight scenes are the best I've ever seen in any boxing film and I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll stand the ground on that with anybody, yeah. you know. But also the story, I know there's a lot of, again, a lot of love in that film. You know, Johnny had worked with uh, uh, Ray Winston and worked with Ian McShane, um, on uh, that the dwarfs the seven dwarfs thing yeah and when they all played dwarfs with Bob Hoskins and uh, God rest his soul and Johnny was writing it then and he mentioned it to Ray and Ray's um, Ray was a boxer ex boxer at um, over in Repton in East London and his dad was a keen boxer as well so Ray was like yeah I'm in and Ian says yeah if I if I'm over I'll do it I'll try and get over and do it because Ian lives in America and then. Um, there's all these lovely God moments. So um, Mark Baxter, who's a big friend of Johnny's and who I'm a friend of, who's they're from the same Elephant Castle area, Walworth Road area. And Mark's um, a real mover and shaker around Soho and a fantastic bloke. And, you know, he, he's great. For, he does PR and publicity stuff and for different clothing companies around Soho and stuff like that. And just anybody. And he works closely with Weller, Paul Weller. So Johnny had written, um, I think, half of her first draft and wanted Mark to have a look at it because they were friends so he could get a proper working-class mate's view on what he thought was good about it. And so Bax had it in his, um, his bag 
went to see Paul Weller do a private gig for, I think, a Japanese TV company somewhere up in Abbey Road. He was interviewed afterwards and asked, is there anything out of your massive you know, career that you think's missing? And he went, um, film score? I'd love to score a film. So at the, at the end of it, Mark gives him the script and tells him the story. And, and what he called, um, Paul Weller's father was a boxer. So Paul read it and said, I want to meet Johnny. Met him at Baratalia, upstairs in Baratalia. Johnny t- pitched the story to him. Paul shook his hands as a in. So then to be able to say that he had Ray Winston and Paul Weller on board, the thing started gathering and gathering pace then, you know. And so we also had, the, the gym was full. So we were making it in Stoke and we built the gym from scratch to get the camera angles. We weren't messing around in a, somebody's gym and trying to set up a camera team there. You actually had the camera the way exactly where you wanted, false walls and stuff. And then we had um, two gyms. There was a um, gym from Birmingham and a gym from um, Stoke. So had their lads and their champion boxers and there's lads that were, all the top boys were coming in as extras and we had them just training all day in the gym and they were fantastic. If you're ever going to make a film out there, get boxers in to do it, to be your um, your supporting cast. So dedicated, so disciplined, nothing was so respectful, so loving, you know what I mean? It was great. The, the only professional connection I've ever had with boxers is when I, I used to be a masseur and I worked in the the sports centre next to the Millwall ground, mostly doing cyclists and triathletes. Guy from the kickboxing club base there comes in and says, we've got a tournament in Eltham, in this pub in Eltham on Saturday. Will you be our masseur? I was scared shitless, frankly. I thought, you know, these guys are thugs. I've never met such a lovely, lovely bunch of lads. And all seven of my boxers won, but each of their opponents would come in after the bout and they would stand, not just shake their hand and walk away, but shake, shake their hand, stand and have a good chat. And after I managed to sneak in for a couple of the bouts, and to start with, I was stood at the back going, wincing and kind of being wimpy. And by the end of it, I was practically slapping the canvas like I was watching World of Sport wrestling, you know, going, you know, yeah. I, I, I really got it. Yeah, I did I really too. I did too, because I'd always really watched boxing from afar. I'd done a wee bit at school, so I would never, I, I'd never really immersed myself in it like Johnny had or Ray had, for example. Because of, I had to build the character, I wanted to um, go and hang out in the gym and I was going to hang out at Barry McGuigan's who was helping Johnny with his, to uh, get Johnny ready for the fight. Actually, I'd been training him up for years, a couple of years beforehand. And it didn't work out. And Johnny said to me, look, would you be interested in going down to the Fitzroy Lodge? And I went, yeah, this is my old, it's my old club. And I went, yeah, I'd love to. And I went down and I met um, Mark Raggate and Mick Guilfoyle and them boys down there. And... They were just brilliant. And Mark was just really kind and really straight. And re- and then I got a whole sense of, oh, I get, I know who my character is now. You know, I can build, a, and I built it around that um, honour that there's in boxing clubs because there's a lot of young men and women, but a lot of young men, ostensibly, who life has fallen to bits for them out in the street, you know, from broken families or just going to join a gang or get into the gear or getting chucked out of school and they've just got no form and they probably don't have a father figure in their life and some way some god moment brings them through the doors of a boxing club and all of a sudden now they become they become somebody and they're given values that we would see today as old school values would i be brought up by you've been brought up by you know you open the door for a woman you say sir and you say mommy say please you say thank you. you and you you work hard and you give it your heart and your soul and, and you're you're not snidey, you don't steal, you don't think, you know, all that stuff is in those gyms. Now, the reputation for those gyms goes before them and a lot of people see them as a place for, for thugs and gangsters, you know. Mm. And actually, nine times out of ten, it's none of those things at all. And like Fitzroy Lodge was just amazing. I got a whole insight into that, the lineage between Mick Carney through um, through Mark Raggett and through Johnny when they talk about this, uh, the guy who used to run the gym who's passed on. They talk with such love and such respect and they're carrying that torch and even though there's going to be days they might not want to do it they're having to do it for Mick and just I just the romance of that was just fantastic for me and I was able to see that and put that into my character don't you think there's a there's a there's a cycling 
movie equivalent of jawbone to be made because nobody's nobody's nailed it have they nobody's nailed cycling on film really there have been some great films i still love breaking away as a as a film but the cycling in it is there's a courier one up at the moment that was somebody told me about and some of the footage where they've obviously because we've got gopros now and stuff like that and you can strap them to the bike and we've got fast editing you could make a really exciting live action one but it's trying to get a um it's just trying to wrap a good story around it as well, you know. I tried to write a Courier one one time in, in the 90s and presented it to um, um, the powers to be and they weren't interested. Uh, but, you know, I'd still, I still love the idea of it, you know what I mean? I still love the idea of it. Because it's that the adrenaline and when you're in a heightened state of consciousness where you're, you know, millimetres away from bad injury or death and it just, you're alive you're completely alive. You know, I, I used to get home on a Friday night and I couldn't sleep. You know, the adrenaline that was going through me, you know, and it's, it must be the same for a cyclist, you know, even like Froome has been doing it for, for whatever, is still getting that. You're still addicted to that. You know, you see the, the ex-pros and they're fat. <laughs> All of a sudden, they just can't help themselves. And that's not middle-aged spread. That's the event of the whole body going, fudumfa, you know what I mean? Because it, they've just been living on muscle and, and adrenaline, you know. What's next for you then? Well, there's a new series of Luther, um, which we'll probably be filming around. It's normally around sort of December, January, January, February. Those sort of dark, horrible, rainy days that fits Luther. <laughs> it's never in the Caribbean. It's never Luther goes to Mauritius. It's always somewhere in the back street in Shoreditch, somewhere in dripping rain. And I remember one night we'd, we were out, and it was one of the rare times that my character, Benny, gets out, and it was a balmy... Uh, not balmy but it was a dry clear uh, winter's evening it was lovely <laughs> they got the fire brigade out to do the sprinklers for the make it was raining <sighs> but we're doing that and there's a few little things in the pipeline I was going to say does it feel weird talking about a film when it's you know possibly what two years since you actually shot it Jawbone yeah no um, I for, no I think well, Jawbone can happen pretty quickly to be fair but um, for me, Jawbone was really important because of all the stuff that I've just said. But on top of that as well, there was a lot of, um, you know, serendipity for me and synchronicity for me as well because you know, Ray Winston was a hero of mine from um, when I was a kid. Now, Ray's not much older than me, but, like, he was a big boy when I was a wee boy, you know. He was, like, 19 when I was 16. And I seen a triple bill at the Curzon at the Hollywood Arches in Belfast. And it was on like forever, and, and it was, Curzon was like a real Art Deco flea pit. It's beautiful now; it's still Art Deco. Quadrophenia, Scum, and Scrubbers were on as a triple bill, and I oh. went every day for like a month. I seen it, and I came out in love with Ray Winston, Kathy Burke, and Phil Daniels. And it didn't make me want to become an actor. I never thought, never made those quantum leaps, but I came out with a real sense of understanding a culture that was across the water from me and seeing working class actors so it must have dripped into me so Ray was a, a hero Weller's always been a hero from day one from in the city from the first time I heard him down the tube station at midnight I was a massive jam fan and style council and his and his his whole career I've always been a big fan of him Barry McGuigan was our hero from you know I stood outside QPR's ground trying to get him when he was for his Pedroza fight you know, the whole of Ireland seemed like they'd taken over Shepherd's Bush that night. I'll never forget it. You know, so for all them things together and then to become friends and, you know, with Johnny, who before I knew him, I was a massive fan of his from London to Brighton. Again, it was like a a, a moment from seeing Phil Daniels and Ray Winston and Kathy Burke. Again, an authentic London voice. And I think London actors have it hard because, you know, if you're a working-class London actor, you're getting tarred with the Cockney gangster brush, and that's not fair. You know, there's a lot of them have got so much range and so much interest, so many interests. And, you know, it's a bit like myself. If you're Northern Irish, you're either going to be, a, an, alcohol, you're going to be an alcoholic terrorist or something, you know what I mean? So you've got to constantly re fight against that. And I think that was Johnny's reaction when he made Jawbone. So to be part of all that, all those things together, was, was massive for me.
you know. So I'll never stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so we we just need to hook you up with Miguel Injury now, then then you got the full set. Yeah, just me and just have me and um, me and Miguel could do a staring competition. I'm sure you could do the talking. You'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, Michael Smiley, it's been a pleasure to have you on the uh, Ruler podcast. All that remains for us to do is the Ruler quiz. Last time the question was: Sean Kelly won the nineteen eighty eight Vuelta. Who came second? And the answer was Ryman Dyson. Yes, indeed. I kind of, I kind of went for that question because, like, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I thought, who's Ryman Dyson? And I did a little back, backstory checking, and he was German road champion '84 and '86. Yep, cyclocross and, champion. And um, yeah, man of my own heart, cyclocross champion '84 and '85. I also did a little bit of uh, research on him. Uh, he rode for uh, Pouche, a uh, Swiss team. Um, and uh, Teca, and he actually said, the Spanish team, Teca, and he said that the Vuelta was his favourite race of all time, and he um, he actually had some success in other Spanish races as well. Sadly, his career ended because of injuries in the 1989 Vuelta, when he went at speed into an unlit tunnel Whoa. and crashed. And, uh, in fact, he later sued the organisers of the Vuelta um, for an unsafe route and got quite a bit of money in compensation. Until recently, also, he was uh, DS at Gerolsteiner. Apparently, he now lives in Spain and appears to do quite a bit of mountain biking. Was the Sean Kelly, was he... What was the team he was riding? Was it Cass? Yeah. Then. Cass was the greatest jersey. Coolest. Uh, the winner, we should uh, mention, Jonathan Hodgkins. Well done, Jonathan. Well done, Johnny boy. And what's the question this And the question for uh, this podcast, just to see if you've been uh, actually listening or not, is uh, Michael played a character in the sitcom Spaced, who was a cycle courier. What was his name? Spin back, if you weren't listening earlier on. The full name, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> his middle obviously, name. Obviously. Middle name and everything. And uh, the winner gets... Uh, a ruler t-shirt. Another ruler t-shirt. Excellent. OK, that's it. Thanks to Michael Smiley. Thanks to Ian Cleverly. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll speak soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.